Welcome to the podcast of Scott Street MB Church. We hope you find this message inspiring and encouraging in your walk as a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Morning. So I'll be reading from John 3, verses 1 to 21, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what he has done has been done through God. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being here, meeting us here this morning. And um, I pray that you would uh, use me, speak through me this morning, and speak to each one of us here um, with, uh, with your word and with the story of Nicodemus. Amen. So, as with a lot of other Bible characters that we've been looking at this summer, um, we're going to start by looking at the the name of Nicodemus and what that means. So, in Greek, Nicodemus means uh, people's victory or victory of the people. So, I thought that was super interesting because it's not really obvious what that means in this case. Um, After having just read this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, it sure doesn't seem like Nicodemus won anything there. Kind of seems like Jesus took him to town in that evening debate. But uh, I guess for now, let's just keep that in mind. People's victory is what Nicodemus means, and we'll return to that later. So in this story, 
Nicodemus comes to talk with Jesus at night. That's something uh, interesting right there. It could mean a couple different things. Uh, One, maybe Nicodemus was going there on behalf of the other Pharisees to kind of learn some inside information about Jesus to use against him later. Um, But more likely, in my opinion, it's Nicodemus was probably having doubts about how he and his fellow Pharisees were going about following God. And I think he didn't want his colleagues to see him asking those questions, so he came at night when no one would see him. For the sake of this morning, I'm going to assume that it's the latter of those two options, um, for the sake of my entire sermon. Now, based on that assumption, he recognizes that Jesus is from God, but is still unsure. He probably comes at night because he's thinking about his own reputation. Nicodemus doesn't want his fellow Pharisees to see him colluding with the enemy, so to speak. But the fact he comes to see Jesus at all seems to suggest he realizes that he and his colleagues might be on the side of wrong, and Jesus may have some answers. This statement, uh, we know you are a teacher who comes from God, seems to be Nicodemus's way of making a bit of a concession. I read it more as him saying, Jesus, I don't think you are God, but I'm willing to admit you're from God. That's a little bit how I was picturing him saying it. Nicodemus is essentially asking Jesus who he really is. But instead of answering that question outright, Jesus kind of explains the entire gist of salvation. Um, He starts by saying, first, you must be born again. Obviously, Nicodemus has some trouble there. Um, And if you're not a regular churchgoer and used to religious-y phrases like that, you might be having some trouble with that phrase too. What does it mean to be born again? Um, In verse 6, he says, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. With this verse, I can't help but think that the idea, about the idea that as followers of Jesus, we're not citizens of this world, but we're citizens of the kingdom of God. Just as we're born physically um, and become citizens of, say, Canada, um, Jesus is saying that if we're born of the Spirit, then we become citizens of God's kingdom and God's nation. Uh, I feel like I always quote this verse, but as it says in Hebrews, uh, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is talking about people in the Old Testament, but I think it rings true now and also to them then in Jesus' time. Um, people born of the Spirit don't live for a specific country or a specific, uh, this specific earth. Uh, we live for a heavenly one, one of God. Um, the terms born again and born of the Spirit also refer to following Jesus by getting baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has been baptized by John the Baptist, but the Holy Spirit didn't enter the scene until Jesus ascended into heaven. 
So they don't know about that yet. At least Nicodemus doesn't. So are you still confused about what the phrase born again actually means? So is Nicodemus. Luckily, for after, after calling for the need to be born again, Jesus explains that the way to do this is through himself. So in verse 13, he says, No one has ever gone into, the, into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is the way to the Father, the only way of salvation. In the Old Testament, there's this uh, crazy story about the Israelites that Jesus talks about here. Um, their whole camp was overrun by poisonous snakes. And if you got bit by any of these snakes, then you would die. Yikes, yeah. But God told Moses, who was leading the Israelites at the time, to make a bronze snake sculpture and put it up on a pole so everyone could see it. Then, if anyone was bitten by one of these poisonous snakes, they could look up at the sculpture, believing that God would save them and they would be saved from the poison. So, uh, I think you kids have been sitting down for long enough. We're going to try something here, okay? Do you guys want to play a game? Yes. Okay. Sabrina is going to... uh, You're going to follow Sabrina. She's going to take you back there to the back of the sanctuary. And then, while that's going on, I'm going to explain the rules to everyone else in the sanctuary. Okay. The kids... You kids are going to be the Israelites, okay? You're in the wilderness, and there are snakes, okay? So everyone on, in the aisle here, if you're, if you're close to the aisle but not quite at the edge, maybe you want to scooch over so you can, you can participate. Thanks, Matt. Perfect. Okay, so uh, you can, you're going to put your arms out, and those are going to be the snakes, and the kids have to try and get back to their seats without getting bit by a snake. And don't just, like, just, you just have to touch them lightly. Now, so, so, so snakes can, uh, the snakes can get ready. You can, you can get out so the kids know what they're looking at. There's a few uh, more, a few longer range snakes that are going to appear as well right now. Maybe they want to, uh-oh, this is going to be hard. Okay, so kids, are you, can you hear me kids back there? If you get touched by a snake, you have to stop, okay? You have to stop where you are. See how far you can get, okay? Ready? Go. Oh, he got touched. Okay. Anyone else want to try? Maybe the snakes at the back can go easy and be a bit shorter. Oh, 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 Ruben's so close. Oh, did you get touched there? Okay. Anyone else? Okay. So here, it is kind of hard, isn't it? Why don't we, has everyone been touched already or are you guys still going? Okay. Um, why, don't, why don't you all look this way? So, obviously, this is, this is pretty hard, eh? Um, you might need a way to save you and give you a chance in this game. So, here I have a bronze snake. It's kind of bronze. I'm going to just pick a random spot up here. Definitely not planned. 
and not a metaphor in any way. It is a metaphor. It's definitely a metaphor. Okay. So, kids, if you get touched by a snake, just look at that, and then you can keep going until you get touched again. Okay? And then try and make it to your seats now. Okay, we got a few people who made it. Sabrina, did you, did you make it through already? Keep your eyes on the snake. So close. Almost there. All right, let's give, let's give them a hand. So Jesus explains to um, Nicodemus that just like Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness, Jesus himself will be lifted up. Um, And just like the Israelites who were bitten by the snakes were saved by looking at the bronze snake, everyone who looks to Jesus and believes in him will be saved. This term, lifted up in reference to Jesus, has two meanings. Uh, One, that Jesus will be lifted up on the cross in death. But two, also that he will be lifted up uh, to heaven after the resurrection. Um. John sums up everything in, that uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus in possibly the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is Jesus' message to Nicodemus. And it's also Jesus' message to us. God loves people all people, God loves us so much that he gave up the thing that he loves the most, his son Jesus, for all people. Through Jesus, we can be saved from sin, and because of that, we are his people and can live with him forever. That was Jesus' message to Nicodemus when Nicodemus asked him who he really is. We don't really find out right away how Nicodemus reacts to Jesus when he says this. Uh, But we do encounter him a couple more times in the book of John, so I'm going to move on to there. Uh, If you want to turn with me to John 7, verse 45 to 52, that is the next time that we meet Nicodemus. To set the stage here, um, this is right after there's been a debate going on as to who Jesus is, the religious leaders Uh, don't think he's the Messiah. Some of the people think he is. Um, So I'm going to start reading at chapter 7, verse 45. Oh, and the religious leaders had sent police to go arrest Jesus. So that's the stage is where we're at. Yes, the popo. Thanks, Nate. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you too? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will not find a prophet from Galilee. 
So, right before this passage, they're debating whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. The chief priests and the Pharisees send the popo to go arrest Jesus. But they come back empty-handed. And say they couldn't do it because no one talks the way this guy does. It's likely that they were afraid that a riot might break out and the people would get upset with them if they did arrest Jesus there. So the Pharisees use some brilliant logic and say, none of us believe in Jesus, and we're really smart. So that means anyone who believes in Jesus isn't smart. Obviously, there's a problem with that argument. Just because nobody's smart, nobody smart believes something to be true doesn't mean it's not true. Furthermore, Nicodemus is among the Pharisees, and there's no doubt that he is an intelligent person, according to the world's standards. And evidently, he's been mulling things over since his last encounter with Jesus. Because he decides to speak up at this point, possibly, I might add, risking his reputation and standing among the rest of the council. Saying that they shouldn't condemn someone without first letting that person explain themselves. Nicodemus stands up for the rule of law, while the rest of the Pharisees are trying to go around it to get rid of Jesus. The other Pharisees dismiss his statement, saying that since Jesus is from Galilee, they don't need to hear what he has to say, because they know the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, apparently. So we learn a little more about our friend Nicodemus here. Uh, If during that first nighttime encounter with Jesus, he was still on the fence about who Jesus was, he certainly seems to be leaning over that fence at this point. Um... While at first he went to see him at night so as to not risk being seen with Jesus, now he openly speaks to defend Jesus' Jesus's rights to a fair trial. Um, so the last time that we see Nicodemus is after Jesus' death. Spoilers, if you didn't know that happened. Um, but it's kind of important. So we're going to turn to John 19 now, uh, verse 38. And again, feel free to read along with me. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So... That's all we hear about Nicodemus in the Bible. But we can gather a few more things from this passage about him. Joseph of Arimathea, he's a guy we haven't met yet in this story. Um, But we're told that he's a secret follower of Jesus. Uh, We learn from the Gospel of Luke when it talks about him that he's a member of the council, meaning the Sanhedrin, where all the religious leaders are, um, 
He's a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. So he was against the decision to kill Jesus Christ. But he was also part of the Sanhedrin. So by association, we can safely assume that Nicodemus had also been secretly following Jesus at this point. And I find that to be an interesting development. The two men show a lot of courage to do what they do here, to the point where this might be the place that they out themselves as followers of Jesus. They had to ask Pilate for Jesus' body, which would have been a somewhat public act, I imagine. And they're told, and we're told that the tomb that they buried Jesus in was at the very place where he was crucified. So there almost definitely would have been at least a number of people around still to see them do that. And if they didn't see them bury Jesus, they certainly would have smelled him him being buried because Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. That's a lot. To put that in perspective, if that was transferred into today's currency, it would be about $12,000 worth of spices. Um, and it's 75 pounds, so Nicodemus wouldn't have been able to carry that all by himself. He probably would have had to have a cart or some servants or a mule or something to help him. Um, and also it brings to mind the story of Mary earlier in John. Um, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, and the fragrance fills the entire room. Now, it's probably a slightly different concoction of spices that she uses than what Nicodemus uses, but the amount was hundred, uh, what, about a hundred times more is what Nicodemus had than what Mary had, and that filled the entire house. So, feel like it would be a very nice scent in the land that day. Um, the cost and quantity of the spices Nicodemus brought was similar to what would have been used for a member of a royalty. So here, Nicodemus and Joseph essentially give Jesus a royal burial, albeit a rushed one. I find it interesting that myrrh was also one of the ones that's used, as it was also one of the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus when he was, when he was born. In Matthew, it says, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, so here we have a connection between Jesus' birth and Jesus' death. One of the main things that Jesus was telling Nicodemus about in their first meeting was the idea of being born again. Now that Jesus had died and would be resurrected in three days, again, spoilers, that second birth of the Spirit would become possible. While we don't know for sure what Nicodemus was thinking, it's possible that after all this time, Nicodemus finally understood what, was, what Jesus was doing more than most other people at the time. That Jesus' death was essential for our second birth. I mean, if it's true that this was Nicodemus's first non-secret act as a follower of Jesus, why would he decide to out himself right after Jesus' death, unless he understood what that death meant? Even Jesus' disciples and closest friends didn't really understand until after the resurrection. <clears throat> that idea is super fascinated, fascinating to me, and while admittedly it's not completely supported in the story, it's, doesn't, it's not a guarantee at all, I find it really interesting, and I don't have time to get much further into it. But it's okay, because it doesn't have a whole lot of impact on the meaning of the story, which is what I'm getting to now. Regardless of the person 
Regardless, the person of Nicodemus can be super relatable to us. Many of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time know many things, uh, just like Nicodemus and the Pharisees did. Sometimes we get distracted following God's commands without realizing the big picture of why we're doing so. On the other hand, also like Nicodemus, we can sometimes be afraid to follow Jesus wholeheartedly because of how others in our lives might view us. We might come and ask Jesus questions at night and keep our faith a secret to maintain our position or our reputation. If you're like me and you understand and your understanding of Jesus didn't hit you like a lightning bolt as soon as you became a Christian, then you should do what Nicodemus did. Ask God questions and look for the answers. Then, like Nicodemus, we too can begin to realize Jesus' message more fully. I think as followers of Jesus, the main lesson we can learn from Nicodemus is that as our understanding of Jesus grows, so should our courage in following him. Which brings me back to his name, People's Victory. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he says this, I declare to you that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must, must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As our understanding of Jesus grows, so should our courage in following him because Jesus has already won the victory. I think Nicodemus's name refers to his eventual understanding of this, that what Jesus did with his death and resurrection, Jesus represents the victory for the people. In his resurrection, Jesus won a victory over death and shared it with us. Jesus's victory is our victory. When we turn our eyes to Jesus, lift it up for all to see, We, the people, will have victory over death and will have eternal life with God. Thank you for listening. For any questions about the message or to contact any of our pastors, please visit scottstreetchurch.ca.